this is Omer, and you're tuning in to Generation Squeeze's Hard Truths podcast. Gen Squeeze advocates for governments to create budgets that have a basis in intergenerational fairness. As things currently stand, aiding government budgets at both the federal and provincial levels tend to be disproportionately directed towards the needs of older generations. The conversation you're about to hear between Jen Squeeze's Paul Kershaw and Bill Robson from the C.D. Howe Institute is about the generational imbalance in government budgeting. The conversation gets into some of the technical details of how we got into our present situation and how we might try to move forward in a better direction. But before transitioning to that discussion, I just want to make a brief and related announcement. Jen Squeeze just launched a video contest that some of our listeners may find of interest. The contest is seeking video entries that call on our elected representatives to pledge to become champions of generational fairness. An important contest detail is that there are thousands of dollars in cash prizes. You can find out more about the video contest by clicking the link in the podcast description. With that out of the way, let's get to the discussion between Paul Kershaw and Bill Robson. All right, Bill. Welcome to Hard Truths. We're so happy to have you here. Just as we begin, why don't you share a few sentences about what is the C.D. Howe Institute? The C.D. Howe Institute is an economic policy think tank. We work on just about anything where there's an economic angle affecting Canadian living standards. And the areas that have been particularly big for us over the last little while have been uh, fiscal policy, budgetary policy, health care. Uh, monetary policy was quiet for a while, but with inflation high, that's now a big area for us. Um, and in the past, we've worked a lot on areas such as international trade and pensions. So wherever there seems to be a particularly tough policy conundrum and uh, serious implications for um, Canadian prosperity and, and Canadian living standards, we try to weigh in in a constructive way. Well, I'm excited to um, have you on the show today with us to talk about one of those tough policy problems and actually invite you to go back to something you were bringing on to the Canadian agenda over a decade ago. Because the hard hard truth that I wish to explore with you today is one that you and the C.D. Howe started talking about in an article you described as the boomer bulge. And it was published back in 2009. And I hope that you can remember it well. I know in my own case, like, what did I write back in 2009? Um, But I want to draw attention to it today because it's an article that really contributed to my motivation to found Generation Squeeze. In that article, you featured the hard truth that the aging population, many of the parents and grandparents that our listeners love, haven't actually had the chance yet to prepay for the medical care and retirement income that they're now wanting to use in retirement. And to quote you, here's what you said back in 2009. Several issues show that federal and provincial governments are poorly prepared for the challenges ahead. Potentially most important of all are the tabs governments face for age-related program spending in the future. Programs like old age security and medical care are implicit promises of services and transfer payments as the population ages that Canadians appear to be counting on but have, not, have, but have made no provision to pay for. And I know that as the founder of Gen Squeeze, I find this a really dicey 
difficult conversation to start with people, to raise in Canada, because one never wants to demean the hard work that people have performed over their lives. And never, no one ever wants to imply that our aging parents and grandparents didn't pay taxes in the past and that they're not paying taxes now. So the problem that you were highlighting years ago and that persists until today is that we weren't asking our aging population to pay enough taxes to cover the cost for what they want now in retirement. And I'm hoping I can invite you into that dicey, difficult, uncomfortable space. And could you help our listeners understand what do you mean the aging population hasn't had a chance yet to prepay for programs like medical care and old age security? The biggest problem, uh, and it came as a bit of a surprise, even if a slow motion surprise, was the demographic change. There's been a very long trend, uh, and I'm talking more than a century, toward lower birth rates. Um, but uh, it was uh, reversed uh, temporarily after the end of the Second World War. And the baby boom, uh, especially in Canada, this is, uh, it happened in many other countries, but Canada is a particularly pronounced example, had a very large surge of young people uh, coming into the workforce. So many of the programs that got put in place during the 60s and the 70s extrapolated from that higher birth rate and the rapid growth of the working age population. Uh, and, and, and the designers said, we don't have a long-term sustainability problem here because the growth of the working age population is going to be rapid enough compared to the growth of the older population uh, that there's no serious uh, imbalance. Um, there's much else to say, but I think I'd start with that. It turned out not to be true. The baby boom came and went, and we now have this reappearance of a fertility rate that's now uh, in the area of 1 in 1.5 kids per woman. And so what that means is you do have this uh, much larger population of senior people compared to the working age population. So for any program that requires uh, work income, whether it's uh, a pension plan in a, in a company or a, or a public plan that requires uh, income from the working age population, you're dealing with a problem that just wasn't foreseen uh, at the beginning. So that's the, that, I'll start with that. There's much else to be said about did they pay taxes and uh, I'm happy to go into that. But the demographic thing uh, really is the root of so many of the stresses we face now. So maybe one way I understand what you're saying is that when we launched programs like old age security and we launched medical care, they started you know taking off. And in the early 1970s, they were getting well established. And at that time, we had about seven workers for every retiree who was going to be especially demanding and drawing on a medical care and old age security. But what you're saying is over time, we didn't have the birth rates that kept that population uh, pattern consistent. And so that now today we have fewer than four workers for every retiree. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, that's it. And if you go back to the early days of the Canada Pension Plan, for example, that's established in the late 1960s, uh, it was intended to run essentially on a pay-as-you-go basis. There was no pre-funding. Um, it was going to be a payroll tax, and the money that got collected in the morning would be paid out in the afternoon. Um, they didn't expect that the payroll tax rate would have to go up very much over time. It was going to go up a little bit, uh, but not so much so that anybody would have really uh, felt the pinch at tax time. So when you look at what happened with the Canada Pension Plan with successive uh, projections as they updated for demography, uh, it, with every projection that pay-as-you-go uh, payroll tax rate went up and up and up. 
And the, the other thing that uh, is important about that period is that we had for a while uh, very rapid economic growth and interest rates were lower than economic growth rates a lot of that time. And the reason I mention that is that it's one thing to be running a pay-as-you-go program knowing that the payroll tax rate is going to go up if the people who are coming into the program can say, okay, well, I'm going to get out of the program, even though I'm going to be paying more into it over time, I'm going to get something that's reasonably attractive out of it. As soon as interest rates go up and it becomes better for you to put your money into some other kind of investment rather than paying the payroll tax, then you have a different kind of sustainability issue because um, the, that higher payroll tax rate starts to feel just like a dead loss. And so one of the things that inspired the change in the Canada Pension Plan was this recognition that for young people, it wasn't only that the payroll tax rate was going to go up, it was that for many of them, uh, this was now a deal that was a lot worse than what they could get if they just invested on their own. And at that point, uh, it's the unfairness of it is really obvious. You're getting dragged into a program that's going to pay you a lousy return. Uh, and so there was a lot of impetus for reform and doing some pre-funding so that wouldn't be such a serious problem. All right. There's a lot to unpack there. First, I wonder if I can have you help our listeners understand what you mean when you say as a pay-as-you-go program, um, because I think that some of our listeners w won't quite understand how that differs from like prepaying. So I think this is the sort of the key issue. And then you're also highlighting for us that part way into the 1990s, we saw the aging pressures on the Canada public pension plan, and we made some big adjustments, but we didn't adjust medical care. We didn't adjust old age security. So I'd love to kind of help help me understand why, why is the adjustment in CPP important? And even more so for our conversation today, why is it significant that we didn't adjust medical care and old age security? When I talked about Canada Pension Plan premiums being paid uh, in the morning and then going out to beneficiaries in the afternoon, uh, I'm exaggerating the speed with which a single dollar would go through the system. But that's essentially the idea. Uh, every year you're going to take in a certain amount. Every year you're going to pay out essentially the same amount. And so there's no... Uh, no, there's no money set aside in order to ensure that the promise that's going to be paid in the future uh, can be paid other than through the payroll taxes that are going to be levied in the future. So that's what uh, pay-as-you-go uh, program signifies. Can I pause you there for a second? Is that So in other words, it's people who are in their prime working years are paying into the program, but they're effectively paying for the benefits of those who have gone into retirement or those who are now drawing on the medical care system, which is going to be disproportionate. So you're paying for the people who've come before you is what you're effectively saying. Yes, and you're counting on the people who come afterwards to pay for you. Now, just uh, because you mentioned um, some of the uh, old age programs in addition to the Canada Pension Plan, here's a really tricky problem. Right from the beginning, the Canada Pension Plan did charge these premiums. When you go back to the early days of old age security, there was a special point on the income tax uh, that was imposed at the time to pay for that. And one of the things that has really complicated discussions about these things is um, not just what you had mentioned earlier, which is important. Um, we're talking about the generation when these programs were established that lived through the Depression, that fought in the Second World War. There was a very strong sense that this was a generation that had made some sacrifices and it was appropriate to look after them well. True enough. 
Also, there was a special tax put in place, just as with the Canada Pension Plan, there was a payroll tax. And that complicated things a lot because many people thought and felt that, in fact, this money was going into some kind of a big piggy bank, uh, that there was some kind of a fund to look after the program uh, in the future. And so to even suggest that, uh, in a sense, the, the money hadn't been put aside, that the program was just running on a, as I say, a pay-as-you-go basis with the money that was coming in, uh, going immediately out, uh, that wasn't how a lot of people understood it. And so when it came time to make a change, you had a lot of resistance from people who said, well, wait a minute, I have been paying in all this time. Did the government steal the money? No, the government didn't steal the money. They were always explicit that that was how the program worked. Um, but because it kind of looked better to dress it up with a premium or a special tax, uh, that's how it was done. And, and a lot of people uh, got taken in by that. I see. So I can be at some dinner conversations that, you know, I try to be a bit provocative and, and, and you know, engaging with some of my older relatives uh, that's will happen, um, you know, the next intergenerational table with me. And I'll try and push a little bit. Like, did you know that while you paid taxes throughout your working lives, it isn't the case that you've necessarily paid enough for the medical care you're now wanting to use? How do you have that conversation with people at a table? If you, were, if you weren't at the policy presentation from C.D. Howe Institute, but you're hanging out with, you know, multiple family members of different ages, and you were wanting to be a, a bit of a provocateur, how would you lean into that conversation in a productive way? It really depends on the orientation of the person that you're talking to. Um, a lot of people on an individual basis have a sense that there is a problem. I mean, the demographic facts, the, the fact that we now have more old people than, than young people, um, a lot of people know that and a lot of people are a bit uneasy about it. When it comes to what to do about it or, or, or even how to frame the problem, uh, there you get into some tricky problems. Um, I remember at the time of the Canada Pension Plan reform, uh, the idea that there was something unsustainable about the program uh, was very viscerally unattractive to people. Now, we got through that one, I think, partly because a pension plan's a little easier to, you, you do the math, uh, you figure out how you're going to be able to get a bit more money into it in the short run. There was a bit of trimming of benefits. I was surprised that that turned out to be possible to do. But at the end of it, it's a dollars and cents calculation. Healthcare is different. Um, a lot of times when I would point out that there was a demographic problem in that uh, the aging population was adding about 1% a year to healthcare costs, and therefore we had to think about what to do to accommodate that pressure and prepare for it, a lot of people took that as a criticism of the way healthcare is structured in Canada, uh, that, there that I was criticizing the publicly funded system and Canada's particular approach to that. So you can easily find yourself getting into trouble on that front as well. Um, if people think that instead of pointing out that you'd like to look for a different, more sustainable source of funding, uh, they think that you're really going after the, the roots of the system. So I haven't really helped you with that dinner table conversation. But when I'm talking about this with people, I'm always alert to the fact that there are a lot of areas of sensitivity here. And sometimes uh, you'll, you'll find that a person's getting quite upset uh, because of something that you didn't even realize you'd said or some implication that they're picking up. Right. And uh, so 
so the conversation about how the aging of the population is impacting our medical care system um, and putting some funding pressures on it can then leave into, lead into conversations about, well, are you suggesting then we need to privatize medical care to deal with it? And that's not what you're putting on the table per se. You're just saying, let's be open to the pressures on the public medical care system if we're not asking people to prepay for the benefits that they're going to be wanting to use when we have this demographic bulge. I think that it makes sense to think somewhat the same way about healthcare as we uh, do about pensions, uh, but people don't usually make these comparisons. So let me just uh, give a couple of examples. There's a safety net element to both uh, pensions and healthcare. If somebody's in trouble, if somebody's in danger of being destitute, uh, we want to make sure that there's provision for them. In the case of pensions, uh, that's what the uh, OAS and GIS systems, uh, those are not pre-funded. They are, they are grants that everybody gets. They're geared to income, but they're there to protect you from poverty. In, in the case of the healthcare system, uh, the parallel isn't exact, but if you're bleeding from an accident, and you get rushed into the emergency room at the hospital, you're in the safety net part of the system. We're gonna do uh, whatever we can to rescue you because it's really obvious you're in need. There's no question about whether you could have provided for yourself or are you trying to scam the system. It's obvious if you're bleeding to death, uh, we're gonna mobilize all the resources we possibly can. But there are other areas of healthcare where I think it makes sense to argue uh, you, there are foreseeable expenses. Uh, for example, we know that as we get older, we're going to need more drugs. And right at the moment, that's one of the areas of very big cost pressures because all kinds of pharmacological innovations are making previous diseases uh, treatable with drugs that weren't uh, treatable with drugs or treatable at all. Uh, so there are huge increases in quality of life, but a lot of this stuff is very expensive. If you average across the whole population, it's fair to say, okay, as time goes by, we know that people over the age of 60, 65, 70, whatever uh, uh, you know, benchmark you want to put, are going to be using more drugs. It does make sense, I think, to ask people to put something aside in the present so that there will be a kitty to draw on instead of just saying to today's youngsters, well, um, you'll pay for my drugs when I'm old uh, because um, the government's going to force you to. That's not really that attractive a thing when y you know in the present that this higher expense is going to be there. You have the wherewithal to do something about it. Um, it seems to me that when you know it's going to happen and you've got the wherewithal to deal with it, it's not fair just to then say, okay, well, I I'm not going to and I'll let somebody else pick up the tab. And, and that's sort of the idea you had in mind when back in 2009, you were encouraging policymakers to say, oh, we need to invite an aging population to think now about how it's going to set some money aside, some pre-fund, some of the uh, later medical care that they, we know that they're going to be wanting to draw on because that's just a reality of the human experience. As we age, we get slightly, you get biologically more frail and we, re we draw a disproportionate on the healthcare system then. At, we didn't do that, though, at the time, and we can, we're kind of coming home to see some of the pressures on the, the provincial budgets when it comes to medical care. I, I was looking at both the BC budget recently, where I was in the, the lockup for the 2022 BC budget, and I noticed that once again, child care, uh, pardon me, medical care is getting the largest increase in annual spending. In, in just a few years' time, it's going to grow by $3 billion of additional spending per year, even though it's already the biggest. By comparison with, I think, education's getting a quarter of a billion, and even though in BC we're doing something quite historic around childcare, Gen Squeeze has pushed for more funding on childcare actually. But that historic investment on childcare is only 850 million. It's not even a you know a third of the increase in medical care. So you can kind of see this 
pressure with on the medical care budget then having implications for other social investments. And we know the Ontario budget's coming up next. I went back and looked at what did they imagine for the medical care budget line last year and see they're imagining over $5 billion in new spending on medical care annually over the next couple of years. By comparison, education's getting a billion, children and other social services, half a billion. So we've kind of created this interesting fiscal reality at the government level that at the cabinet table, medical care is kind of a bully to other social spending. It's like, it's it's winning at least, it's, it's more powerful at the cabinet table. Um, and that's not just been happening over COVID, but that's been happening for years and years and years in a row. And it's interacting with your observations about this demographic boomer bulge. And uh, I, I wonder, Given that that's shaping more and more some deficit pressures that we're facing at the provincial government level, are there opportunities for us now to kind of retrospectively think about how do we close the gap between prepaying and not prepaying? I didn't ask that well. People weren't invited to prepay in the past. What do we do about that now? I am not sure that the debate has um, moved along to the point where today, if you said uh, it's time for us uh, uh, in in British Columbia or Ontario or or whatever province to start paying, say, uh, an extra point on the GST uh, in order to uh, prepare for the future, because right now everybody feels like we're uh, uh, still and we are uh, very much recovering from the COVID pandemic. Um, there's no use crying over the, the missed opportunity of the past. Um, but what I would say is that um, what we have learned over the last few decades is there's always something that comes up. Um, we've had some periods of steady economic growth, uh, but they get punctuated. They got punctuated back in 2008-09 by a financial crisis and a recession. Um, we then had COVID hit us. Uh, and now there is a war, a major war in Europe. Um, and we, uh, a lot of people are, are saying we've got to either mitigate or adapt to or both uh, global warming. And that's going to be very expensive. And so part of, I think, the lesson, and it's the bigger picture within which you have these discussions about pensions or healthcare, is to say there's always something. Uh, it is just not reasonable for us to uh, make a rosy projection. This is a criticism I have of the federal budget that just came down. Um, we've got this rosy projection, which shows that government revenue is going to grow at a reasonably robust pace and the debt ratio of debt to GDP is going to come down. And we've just come through, or and we're in the middle right now when it comes to the war in Ukraine, of events that couldn't demonstrate more vividly that you just can't uh, count on the future to work out in this benign way. So I'm not, I, I'm answering your question a little obliquely, but um, uh, I think that at the moment, uh, people are very much living uh, in the moment trying to recover from COVID. Many of the uh, investments in healthcare, if I can call them that, uh, that you're talking about are kind of rebuilding a long-term care system that we actually isn't the system we want. Uh, so we've, we've got to get past that. 
Um, but when there's a bit of breathing room, I think it'll be time to re-examine the question. And one of the reasons that I think it will be ripe to re-examine the question is for the reason that you just alluded to. Government budgets are super stretched. We need governments to do more than pay for the healthcare system. We need them to pay for schools. We need them to build infrastructure. We rely on both federal and provincial governments for a variety of income supports. So there are all sorts of things that we need them to do. And the healthcare budget by itself crowding out everything else is clearly just not a happy picture. I don't know who it was. There are a couple of lines I've heard uh, health ministers say. Uh, one of them is, when I became health minister, people started dying who had never died before. It gives you a sense of the sort of ur urgency of the portfolio. Um, and then there's the health minister who says, I was just waiting for the day when the budget would consist of two things, uh, the revenue minister bringing the money in and me spending it. Uh, that's, not, uh, that's not where we want to end up. You said something really powerful about we don't want to cry over past mistakes. I don't think it's spilt milk, but um, you, this, this is a really important observation you may be sharing. Like, well, we missed fixing the problem a decade ago or multiple decades ago. And so there's only so much we can do right now. But I want to push on that a little bit further. And I, maybe I'll pick up your focus on the federal budget. Um, when I was in the budget lockup recently for the 2022 federal budget, I noticed that the increase in old age security over the next five years cumulatively will be $85 billion. That is so much larger than any other spending. Medical care got $30 billion, half of which will go to retirees. Child care, this historic investment in $10 a day child care, only $27 billion. Housing, $10 billion. Fighting climate change, $9 billion. So you can see the order of magnitude going to old age security is so much greater than the other areas. And it actually represents about 60% of the deficits that the federal government intends to incur over the next five years. What do you make of that? If we can't cry over the failure to address this problem some decades ago, what do we do right now, given that it's such a big driver of deficit spending? Well, I now you do make me want to cry over past uh, opportunities. I I only meant what I I only meant that in the sense that it it, it mustn't distract us uh, too much from from the task ahead. It is very tempting to uh, to lay blame. One of the things that I think is important is uh, to remember that uh, policy. Uh, is dynamic. And when you project forward, as the chief actuary federally does, uh, and, and look at the uh, costs of old age security in the future, um, what he's doing is he's presuming that the structure of the program will stay the same. And so what changes is the economic circumstances uh, and the um, and demography, the, the people who are going to be entitled to the payments. What we now have abundant evidence of is that as the older population gets larger uh, and we know that they vote at higher rates than the younger population does, it is very tempting for populist governments to give them more money. And you see this everywhere. You see this in Europe. Uh, you see it in North America. And, and just lately, we've seen it in Canada. The lump sum or the, the, you know, the one-time increase in OAS that happened during the pandemic, there was no justification for that other than that it looked like a cheap time for the federal government to borrow money. 
So why not top up an interest group that you know has a very high voting turnout? Uh, one of the things that we have to uh, watch for as we do these projections into the future uh, is, the, is, is the lessons that we ought to have learned over the last little while. Um, as the demographic balance shifts, so too does the political balance. And there is a lot of merit to acting. Uh, while you've got a political configuration that can uh, that can carry it out. I'll just go back quickly, if I could, to the uh, 1990s and the reform of the Canada Pension Plan. It's not coincidental that that was the time when the federal government had dug itself into a deep uh, debt hole, and then we had some very tough budgets uh, from Paul Martin uh, that turned things around. Uh, there was, at that point, a constituency, including among younger people, that was big enough and active enough and aware enough to say, Say, we'd like to see a program that makes these things more sustainable because we can see a little bit into the future here and we don't see where that's going. So there was at that point a, a political configuration. And it's it's not impossible to imagine once COVID's a bit more in the rearview mirror and interest rates have started to go up and governments are starting to say, OK, well, now you're going to pay a dollar in tax for every dollar that we're spending. And by the way, we're spending a whole lot more at that point. I, I can imagine a political configuration that's a bit more favorable to say, let's stop living quite so much for today. Let's think a bit about tomorrow, because there still is time to mitigate a lot of that impact of, of future long term care costs, future drug costs, future old age security costs on today's younger people. All right. Well, as I turn toward closing our conversation, I'm going to go into one more layer of this dialogue. Given that when we started our age-related programs that we draw on when we're older, like old age security and medical care, at a moment when there are about seven workers for every retiree, and now there are fewer than four, and soon we're projecting there'll be fewer than three, the way that Canada has often been thinking about dealing with it is that we're going to rely, as Canada has often done, on immigration to build our population. And, you know, our country is one that is built on inviting people in. Sometimes we do that well, sometimes we do that unjustly. Uh, presently, we're planning over the 400,000 immigrants a year, and they're often going to settle in urban areas. And I'm going to bridge now to another sort of generational tension that Jen Squeeze often talks about, housing. So as we've been having more and more population come to our large cities, um, one narrative is that's contributing to the rise in home prices. And that rise in home prices erodes affordability for a younger demographic, but actually often increases the housing equity, the housing wealth of those who had bought into the housing market sometime before. And so we have these three converging issues. We didn't, pre we didn't ask an aging population to prepay for its medical care and old age security sufficiently. To compensate, we're bringing in more immigration to ha ensure we have enough workers to try and keep the, the math right in terms of workers relative to retirees. <clears throat> but the implication is that is contributing to a different generational tension around housing prices, eroding affordability, creating wealth windfalls. Do you see some positive opportunities coming out from that very fraught space that we could draw on to address some of the challenges with our, with our budgets on old age security and medical care going forward? It's a tough one because immigration is uh, almost in a literal sense, the lifeblood of the economy. Um, uh, Canada, we're, we are largely immigrants or, or the descendants of immigrants and it's um, uh, been such a driver of prosperity and, and much else about Canada that we like. Um, as for the raw numbers, 
Uh, one point that uh, you didn't mention, but I'll just quickly squeeze it in. Uh, immigrants are younger on average than the um, population that's already resident, but not so much so that even on the scale we're talking about, they can do very much about the demographic profile. And I mention that just because I've often heard people talk about immigration as kind of like an elixir of youth for the country. Uh, as though uh, high numbers of immigrants are going to uh, save us from having to deal with these other pressures. Uh, I would turn it around and say, if we deal with these other pressures, uh, immigrants are still going to want to come to Canada. But if we don't, uh, Canada won't be such an attractive place to come. Interesting. Very interesting. Back to your question. Yeah, on on housing. Um, We are uh, in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million housing starts uh, uh, in Canada a year. And and that's a fairly high number. I mean, residential investment is a big part of our economy. I would argue, in fact, that it's a a little too high compared to some of the other things that we ought to be investing in. Um, But what's interesting about that is that it's not really alleviating the pressure. Uh, We do not have the kind of housing supply, and if we're going to have immigration at that rate and some natural population growth, there's going to be this continued uh, pressure on the housing stock. One of the things that's uh, a bit distressing about modern societies, and you see this in in Canada and uh, the United States and, and certainly in Europe, Uh, all the advanced countries, there's a very strong tension between uh, kind of the insiders and and, and the people who are, 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 you know, the up and comers. Um, And this shows up in all kinds of places. It shows up in occupational licensing, where we tend to see more and more barriers, more and more uh, certificates required for people to do things that um, they didn't used to have to have certificates for. Uh, and there's an element of, I mean, there's there's consumer protection in that, but there's also just incumbents trying to protect what they already have. And housing is very much like that. When you look at the problems we have getting more density in urban areas, um, some of the things that people would like to see when it comes to secondary suites, uh, laneway housing, and, and so on and so on. There's a long list of things that people have proposed. Um, and and the, uh, the people who already have houses in nice areas uh, tend to resist that. So it comes down very much to a local level, whether we're going to be able to find a better balance uh, between preserving the amenities and the things that we like about our urban spaces, uh, but at the same time, uh, not uh, continuing on a course that over a number of years now has just made it increasingly expensive and difficult uh, to build the kind of houses that people uh, want, but also that people want to have around them. So that's it's very much of a local thing. One of the things about the federal budget that bothered me was that uh, in addressing housing, really what they were doing was looking at more ways of getting more money into the system. Uh, I don't think that's really going to solve the problem. That's going to make the prices go up. It's much more of a provincial and especially a local level, making it easier for the housing stock that we want to get built at a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. When I think about sitting around some of the family tables, uh, chatting with people about the challenge of being at a moment in our country where we didn't have our aging population prepay for medical care and old age security in the way that would have been optimal. And people are asking like, well, what can we do about it? I sometimes find myself looking to the housing sector as one potential source of a decent remedy because well, we often talk about rising home prices as contributing to housing unaffordability. The flip side is that for somebody like me, I live in Metro Vancouver, people have heard my story before, like last year alone, my home equity went up by half a million dollars. 
and it's, it's disproportionately a, a, an older population that will be reaping the windfalls from rising home values. Might there be a win-win in that space if we're looking for revenue from a generational cohort that is aging and didn't get invited, didn't get asked in time to prepay for their medical care and old age security? Could we turn to one asset that has actually gone up in ways that they might not have predicted as a potential source of funding to contribute to the needs they have now? I um, I hesitate to endorse that. Uh, I certainly see the appeal of it. Uh, one of the things that is kind of attractive about the Canadian tax system uh, is, uh, and we're I, I'm I'm taking t- uh, us down a, a by road here, but I promise I'll come back to the point. Um, we have a system in Canada that is pretty good about taxing people saving only once. Um, so what I mean by that is if you contribute to an RRSP, for example, uh, you'll get a tax deduction on the way in and then you'll pay tax on the way out. If you uh, contribute to a TFSA, you'll pay tax on the income before it goes in, but then you won't pay tax on the way out. Uh, taxing people saving only once is a very good way of avoiding a situation where there's a stronger incentive to consume in the present. Um, And you see that feature of our tax system in a number of areas, including when it comes to owner-occupied housing. You get no tax break on the way in. We don't have mortgage interest deductibility in Canada the way they do in the United States and other countries. Uh, The flip side of it, though, is that on your principal residence, uh, there's no tax paid on the way out. my, I have a few concerns. I like that in principle. I think it's a very good way to do it. When the housing market is going up the way it is right now, uh, you, you naturally look at it and say, well, hang on, did we get this exactly right? Uh, but here's what I think is, is I'll, I'll make one economic prediction and then I'll make a political prediction. My economic prediction is interest rates are going up. Interest rates are going to go up by more than people expect because inflation is higher than the Bank of Canada expected or forecasters generally expected it to be. And it's going to be stubborn. It's going to be hard to get down. Uh, Higher interest rates are going to cure higher housing prices in a big way. And the biggest concern about that is uh, that, in fact, it could be too abrupt. It could be a crash that that half million in equity that you enjoyed last year could turn into a half million loss uh, next year. Um, I don't think any of us wants to see that happen. That's a recipe for all kinds of trouble. Um, But uh, uh, so I do think that, in fact, this crazy bubble that we've been seeing right now has been very largely a function of the fact that interest rates have been so low and the cure for that is higher interest rates and it's on the way. But my political prediction is that if there, if we're going to be taxed uh, on the sale of our principal residences, there is going to be pressure for tax breaks on the way in, mortgage interest deductibility, more of these boondoggles on the way in. And we saw one in the federal budget that I just thought made no sense at all, like a, a tax-free saving account where you get a deduction on the way in and no tax on the way out. Now, that's, that's, that's a, a really problematic thing. Um, so, um, I, I would hesitate to go in that direction, partly because I think it will lead to these other consequences of people saying, OK, well, now we want this boondoggle on the way in. Uh, we're probably better with the devil we already have. All right. That's interesting to know. I'm going to percolate about that. I'll push one more time on a variation on the theme, and then I'm going to wrap up and let you have the rest of your day. You talk about our tax system being good at taxing one's income, taxing one's prosperity only once, either on the, as it's coming in or as it's going out. But we often focus on taxing people's income. 
and we don't actually talk about wealth. And what's really driving inequality these days, both in Canada and around the planet, is returns to wealth, returns to capital. And so I wonder to what degree when we have an aging population, which by all accounts is actually the wealthiest group of retirees we've ever seen, well, in, at least in the data that I can see in Stats Canada over the last many generations, the wealthiest group of retirees, is it time to start talking about the role of taxing wealth as we're trying to address the needs of an aging population and having a fair generational deal as we go forward? One of the things that I should have mentioned about the housing issue is that there is a very important tax on wealth in the, in the property tax. And uh, I, I kind of like the property tax for some of the reasons that a lot of people don't like the property tax. Um, it's in your face um, and it's uh, levied on something like it's, it's very hard to avoid the property tax. Uh, you might be able to hide income. You might be able to pay cash in some of your transactions. Uh, but the property tax, if you've got a house, uh, they're going to come after you and they've got ways of extracting that from you. Um, I would not have any objection to seeing municipalities and provincial governments levying higher property taxes in the future because they're often very clearly linked to a benefit as well. I mean, they pay for roads, they pay for sewers, they pay for things that people uh, use and value. And there's a pretty direct connection, especially at the municipal level between the taxes that you're paying and the amenities you're getting. So um, a lot of people really dislike the residential property tax. A lot of people uh, uh, there's a lot of political pressure on municipalities and, and on provinces to do something about it. Um, I'd say, nope, just keep using that tax. Uh, it might be ugly. It might be in your face, but that's okay. Uh, uh, some of the best taxes are kind of ugly and, and in your face. Um, when it comes to taxing other kinds of wealth, uh, it's awfully tricky to uh, figure out the, the best way to do that. Um, one of the things that we have in, in Canada that we've actually managed quite well and uh, uh, I'll, I'll just leave this as a possible seed for a future conversation because it does uh, 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 blend with some of the things we've been talking about. A lot of our pension plans are, are reasonably well run. Uh, they have backed their liabilities uh, with assets. Uh, some of them haven't, though. And here's, here's a real conundrum for you. When you're looking at one of the federal government's pension plans that isn't funded, the, uh, the, the pension plan for NPs is not funded. Uh, it's totally unfunded. It's totally pay-as-you-go. It's a very nice pension plan, and there's no money set aside. If you were going to have a wealth tax, what would you tax? There's no asset in the plan. Um, you could try going after each individual person, but uh, you know they haven't yet received their pension. What I think I would look at uh, that I think is congruent with the with with what uh, you know inspired your question is we still have tax breaks for older people. There's an age credit. Why is there an age credit? Like, why does being old mean that you have a need that a younger person might not have? Um, some of the provisions to do with pension income, I, I think there, there are things that we could do uh, that would make the tax system fairer. I think we could be more generous with medical expenses, um, but a little bit less generous when it comes to some of the things that are geared to age only. So there are other ways of getting at it without uh, levying the kind of wealth tax that would uh, cause people to panic. There'd be a, a lot of resistance to it. And some people, especially the people with the best resources and the most mobile, would simply escape it by moving abroad. So I'd rather see it levied on real property. I'd rather see some of the income uh, in, in old age, uh, you know, not treated so favorably by the tax system in comparison to income of younger people. And I think I'd leave it at that.
Oh, that's really helpful to have you be so specific. Um, and as it happens, actually, that's the very logic you uh, outlined right now is why coming out of some solutions lab work that Gen Squeeze led with the with others, um, people were focusing on the very property tax that you were talking about. So some have in the past you lamented that we have this home ownership tax shelter. We don't tax capital gains on principal residences, and and you were referring to some of the challenges of potentially closing that. Um, and that actually motivated us to think about could we add some progressivity to the um, the the residential property tax that people pay on an annual basis. And so that I do I do agree with you is like a key area where if we're looking for additional revenue, especially in some of the windfalls that have happened, we could we could focus on the most valuable homes in the country and, and ask to some degree if, if those who will tend to be a bit older could contribute slightly more in partial uh, effort to address some of the fiscal challenges we're having with programs related to aging. No, the property tax is certainly worth looking at. It depends where you are, what the structure looks like. But one of the things that's often the case is that the property tax that's levied on rental properties is is heavier than the exactly. one that's on owner-occupied housing. And uh, from a generational point of view, when you think about ju- people just starting out, uh, they, they start by renting and then later on they go to owning. So that's hardly fair from a generational point of view. All right. Well, Bill, I really appreciate our time today. Thank you for generously contributing to our hard truths. And uh, I look forward to touching base again soon. Well, thank you for thinking of me. And uh, I hope that the listeners to your podcast uh, have found it entertaining and maybe even a bit enlightening. I'm sure they have. And we will use the wisdom shared today in our effort to make Canada work for all generations. Thank you. everyone it's Sumer again here to conclude this episode i just wanted to remind you to rate and review the podcast if you can and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any new episodes and remember once again that we just launched a video contest details of which can be found by following the link in the podcast episode description thanks again for tuning in we'll see you soon